Craft Beer Radio presents Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. Private Tasting Salon Number 4, IPAs from Coast to Coast, the Evolution of Hoppy Beers, featuring Ron Lindenbush of Lagunitas Brewing Company and Todd Charbonneau of Harpoon Brewery. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, my name is Paul Gatz. I'm director of the Brewers Association. Uh, the Brewers Association is the group that puts on Savor. Uh, we do this to try, to try to change the paradigm for beer and food and what a you know, world-class event could be. Uh, we're a trade group based in Boulder, Colorado, and we thank you all for coming here. I hope you have a great time tonight. Uh, our next uh, private tasting here is IPAs from Coast to Coast, the evolution of hoppy beers. So we're going to start with a couple more traditional IPAs, and then we're going to uh, go a little wackier uh, with some stronger and pushing some of the boundaries of that. Our uh, two speakers today are uh, Todd Charbonneau. Uh, Todd's been with Harpoon for 12 years, uh, 10 of those years as head brewer. Uh, Todd has taken the short course in brewing and malting science with the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. And when he's not brewing, Todd likes to spend time with his family, likes to go mountain biking, and he likes to go bass fishing and then lie about the size of the fish that he's caught. (laughs) And this here is uh, Ron Lindenbush. Ron started as one of the early ones in the craft brewing world. He started with uh, the Hoplin Brewery back in the 1980s. Uh, that was one of the first craft breweries in the country back then. Now it's uh, known as Mendocino Brewing Company. Um, then he uh, switched to the uh, dark side. He worked in the distribution world in the uh, early 90s. Um, you know, beer is sold in a three-tier system. Brewer, distributor, retailer, uh, before it gets to you. Um, but I, I, just, I just kid about that. Um, a lot of the distributors back then, they didn't know what craft beer was and good beer. And, uh, so uh, uh, he helped uh, lead the push toward turning this distribution house, Merino Distributing, into a craft and import house and away from being a Stroh's house. Don't hear much about the Stroh's brand anymore, do you? The world is changing for beer and for the better. Uh, and then uh, Ron has been with uh, Lagunitas since 1995, uh, which is one of the uh, fastest growing breweries in the U.S., and without further ado, I give you Todd Charbonneau and Ron Lindenbush. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. Oh, and this is on Craft Beer Radio, so please use the microphones and keep the cursing down. And uh, also, if anybody has any questions, this is better interactive. Uh, just raise your hand, and I'll get you a mic. Welcome. How's everybody doing? I feel like it's a, kind of a new wave music video in here. It's pretty cool. <laughs> This is good stuff. Uh, my name, again, thank you, Paul. Thank you very much for the, for the wonderful introduction. I do catch big bass occasionally. Um, I'm Todd Charbonneau, the head brewer at the Harpoon Brewery in Boston. Um, we have been around since 19, uh, 1987 when we uh, rolled our first kegs of Harpoon Ale and Golden Lager uh, out of the, our waterfront brewery. We're in the same spot now. Uh, we've, we make quite a bit more beer. Uh, than we than we did back then. Um, back then, it was kind of a you know it was before my time in the brewing industry. I was you know I was I think I was 13 years old, 14 years old, so um, a little older than that. But uh, it, you know there's some there's some similarities in in, in as far as we're we're going to talk today about IPA specifically and, and kind of where it's where it came from in America and where it's gone to. 
there's some similarities between you know the, as far as our from our perspective as far as uh, the the style of IPA and the industry itself. Um, when we were first starting out, and even as far as later on as 1998, when I started at the brewery, there were sort of tumbleweeds going down the road in front of the brewery where we were down on the waterfront. It was a sort of a dodgy area to, to invest your time in. Um, there was there were big dig. If you if you've been to Boston, you've heard of the big dig. There were big dig trucks driving by. It was kind of a really a, sort of a scary place back then. Um, <laughs> gratefully, it, a lot has lots changed since then. Um, and the and the the beer you know the beer scene was such that you know there wasn't a whole lot to choose from. And the company came from a couple guys. Uh, Dan Canary and Rich Doyle, who are still with the company, and they're every day sort of, you know, pounding the pavement and getting things done. Um, and it came from a, a love of flavorful beer and beer that had more to offer than, than what was out there. So, um, you know, getting, getting flavor out to Boston and New England and beyond was sort of was what, these, what these guys had in mind, and it continues to this day. So... You know the same thing. We 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 plotted along with a twenty barrel system at that point and that back then, and self distributed worked worked really hard. Did a lot of sort of guerrilla street marketing, kind of out there on bikes. You know, handing out flyers, saying, you know what, there's a brewery in Boston, and really, like I said, pounding the pavement. Um, and for, you know, our our flagship beer, which is which we're going to taste today, which is this IPA here didn't end up coming along until 1993. Uh, so there, was, there were quite a few years there where we had a couple brands that did really well for us. We grew some recognition, got ourselves out there, and we started working on, summer, on seasonals, I should say, uh, a couple years after the brewery opened. And in 92, we were developing a summer seasonal in the form of, of Harpoon IPA here. And back then, uh, we, we, were, we were working with you know, basically, our na- we're meeting our neighbors at that point. We were working in this area that, as I said, was kind of a, a scary place. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And when we developed this beer, we wanted, we wanted some sort of toasty malt notes. And in order to do some small one-off batches, we worked with a local uh, diner to toast our pale malt in their ovens. So our brewers would go over to this this uh, this place called Pete's Dockside, which is gratefully still there, and toast the malt in the oven and, and, and let it you know let it let it cool down, and toss it into the mash tun the following day uh, for brewing, and you know this beer became our summer seasonal. This beer that they worked on it was it was a, a far cry from what even what we were brewing in 1987. Um, and what people were expecting, you know, uh, a, a 40 IBU beer in, in, in 1980, you know, in 1993. Who's going to drink that beer, right? Um, and, you know, IBU stands for International Bittering Unit, which you, most of you know. Um, it's a measure of the bitterness in the, in the product. And it, that was pretty aggressive for that, that time, and especially on the East Coast. Um, we're going to talk today about East and West Coast beers, not East versus West Coast. I think East Coast and West Coast beers. It's um, all good. <laughs> uh, so, the, you know, the East Coast, I think, kind of has become known as the, the coast that strives for balance a little. Um, at least the, the more, you know, the, the older established uh, IPA brands on the East Coast. And 
IP, our harpoon is our our IPA, I should say, is, uh, is is goes right up that alley. It's very very uh, balanced between malt and hops. Um, it's a beer that I said, as I said, started as a summer seasonal. It went on through the following summer as a seasonal beer. It did so well that we pulled the plug on the seasonal uh, the seasonal designation and made it a year round beer. And it quickly became our flagship beer. Um, and the rest is, is kind of history in the in the in the in, in respect to, to Harpoon Brewery. Um, it's now, you know, it, it's it's eighty percent of our production, seventy five or eighty percent of our production, and uh, something that we we get out there first, you know, when we bring it to bring it into a new uh, selling region. It's the first beer we bring into the market. It's a beer that is brewed with our house yeast. So if you're familiar with Harpoon beers and you, you become familiar with our portfolio, you, you kind of get to know our sort of fruity um, yeast character. Kind of follows through our, a lot of our beers, a lot of the beers that we brew. Um, we use uh, Victory Malt, which is a, a proprietary malt from the Brees uh, Malting Company, which brings that toast that we had originally done by hand, brings that sort of toasty malt character to the table. Uh, we color it with a with caramel sixty, and the that aroma hop, that sort of character of the beer right through it is the classic Cascade hop, which has been sort of the choice of craft brewers for uh, since since craft brewing began here in America. Um, so, going back to the relationship sort of between the development of our IPA and and the craft brewing industry on the whole, I mean, I think that sort of tumbleweeds rolled along. In craft beer for quite a while too, you know, and, and Ron can probably touch on this a little, little more than people I can. People would look at us and go, "Nobody's going to drink stuff that bitter." <laughs> you know, oh, people, yeah, people are afraid to like go into that neighborhood, you know, and walk down that walk down that road. But gratefully, you know, and, and I think we all, you, we kind of owe you, you folks an applaud for uh, for kind of being here today. The the public perception and the education is is greater than it's than it's ever been, and. Uh, you know, it's it's folks like you who go out of your way and you're interested in the products that uh, that kind of perpetuate the, the the brands and the movement. So, thank you very much. What uh, can you tell us about the cheese that you're pairing this with? We're uh, now this is where I sort of br- I'm bridging the gap, I think, between uh, east and west. Uh, it's it's the uh, it's Widmer cheddar cheese, and um, it's you know it's a big sharp cheddar that I think goes well with this the harpoon because again the, the balance of the beer uh, it sort of brings out the nutty character nutty nutty roast character or uh, toast character I should say of the of the malt um, and IPAs have that nice cutting sort of bitterness and hop character that will sort of cleanse your palate in between bites you know in between uh, in between sort of savory cheese bites so it's a nice pairing. I think cheddar and IPA is is um, a lot of times you need you need kind of a bigger cheddar to really hold up to the hops depending on how hoppy the beer is, but cheddar and IPA is kind of a natural. There's no mm-hmm. blue cheese and IPA both are both uh, you know kind of interesting pairings in in a complementary way. It tastes awesome. Ryan, you want to talk about your brewery? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Thanks. 
<laughs> and uh, thanks to Paul and thanks to Todd for doing this together. Uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, I thought when Nancy asked me about, uh, you know, doing an IPA seminar in Salon, uh, you know, we, she said, I'd like you to do it with Harpoon. I thought, all right, Harpoon's been doing IPA on the East Coast longer than just about anybody. And I think we've been doing it on the West Coast longer than just about anybody as a flagship. And, uh, you know, you know you're a pioneer when you've got arrows in your backs, right? <laughs> so, you know, in the earliest days, the uh, you know, I, I grew up in St. Louis, uh, kind of got nursed on Bush. My name's Lyndon Bush, so my nickname was Bush. Of course, when I was about 15, that was the beer I started drinking and never looked back. You know. Turns out I really kind of liked corn grits back then. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with putting a little corn in a beer, you know, but, uh, but the, uh, you know, when I moved to California in 84, uh, a friend of mine had, had moved out there, came down and picked me up in San Francisco, and we went to a place called Tommy's Joint. I don't know if anybody knows Tommy's Joint in San Francisco. Kind of a deli, old school deli, big, uh, you know, butcher counter slicing corned beef and, and sides of, uh, you know, uh, beef roast and things like that. And uh, he said, here, you got to try this local beer. It's called Anchor Steam. And I took one sip and I went, Man, that's bitter. And uh, he goes, "Yeah." And I was like, "Huh? Okay." So I, by the end of that bottle, I was I was transformed. You know, when uh, when I was growing up in in St. Louis, and as I went through college there, and ended up owning a little bar when I got out of school, just a little little dive whiskey bar. And uh, at the time, Heineken Dark was a pretty exotic beer. This was in '83. You know, and uh, Anchor Steam had been going for a little while out in California, but that wasn't making it to St. Louis. Uh, Sierra Nevada. Nevada and Burt Grant and, you know, Red Hook and some of the pioneers on the West Coast had started up by then. But uh, that, that Anchor Steam, I'll tell you, by the end of that bottle, I was, I was sold on, on being open-minded to new beer flavors. And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know what the flavor was that I was tasting, but it was hops. And, boy, I've been hooked on hops ever since. And I imagine everybody in this room feels the same, right? Anybody that's not a hop-forward beer drinker? Anybody here is a guest that, uh, that got talked into coming here to be subjected to the punishment of hops? Um, so that, that uh, you know, but we took off from San Francisco and headed north. Uh, my friend lived up in Humboldt County. And uh, as we traveled through Hopland, he pulls over at the Hopland Brewery and uh, go in and try to sampler set. And Blue Heron was a really hoppy beer, and they didn't call it an IPA. They called it a pale ale at the time. But that was really one of the pioneering sort of hoppy beers also. But I, I settled in on the Blackhawk Stout and just sat in the corner drinking stout after stout and just looking at that room. Has anybody ever been to the Hopland Brewery back in the old days? It's an old, uh, old tavern that was built in the 1800s, you know, stamped tin roofs and just the coolest building, really neat place. And, uh, uh, you know, just really, again, the transformation was, was almost complete. And, uh, you know, I just, that, was, that was in uh, 84. So, you know, Harpoon, I didn't realize you started in 87. That's, uh, that's a little earlier than I thought. But, you know, like Todd was saying, in the early days, nobody thought hoppy beers were going to be a thing. And, um, you know, our first beers were pale ale and a stout. We had a wheat beer, and uh, um, you know, I, I met Tony McGee. He's the owner of the brewery, and he was selling kegs out of his pickup truck. And he had bought this little three and a half barrel system, and uh, he uh, he'd fill up his Ford Ranger and go out and pedal them to bars. You know, so I was running this little distributorship at the time called Marino Distributing. That uh, you know, we uh, we brought in local beers like Anderson Valley and North Coast, Mad River, Lost Coast. Devil Mountain was our biggest brand at the time, and they're non-existent anymore, but they were pretty cool. Um, you know, there were all the big distributors, you know, talk about the dark side, as Paul's saying, you know, that distributors really uh, probably single, single uh, were most responsible, I should say, 
for kind of consolidating what people had access to. And as these small breweries started popping up, you know, the brewery consolidations had you know, gone from where the country before Prohibition had 2,000 breweries, and they were down to 50-something, right, uh, at one point, 40 or 50-something breweries? Yeah, it was 42 brewing companies and a total of 89 brewing facilities in the U.S., uh, a far cry from the 1,613 brewing facilities in the U.S. right now. Yeah, right, right. So, you know, that, that consolidation had really kind of homogenized what people had access to, and what you could get pretty much was German lagers and, uh, and mass-produced German-style lagers. And, um, you know, when there's a couple of dynamics, I think, that change things. And when I went out there to California, moved out in 84, um, you know, Anchor, like I said, was kind of cruising along. Um, Sierra was coming along. There was uh, these other brands that, that were up-and-comers, but they were founded by home brewers primarily. And I think on the East Coast, the difference, as Todd said, the styles are a little more balanced and a little bit more malt-forward and, you know, a little bit, uh, I don't know, more, uh, a little smoother flavors. British. A little more British, right. Yeah, the uh, British is, is it, pretty much. A little closer. But, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the East Coast had had access to a whole lot of really great imported beers from Europe. And those beers didn't all make it to the West Coast. You know, traveling across the country was a lot more money, and people on the West Coast were, you know, I mean, it was, the, uh, it was Heineken and Corona and, you know, some of the, some of the lager type of beers that, that the, came along in the import days and, and a lot of Asian beers as well. And the, the access to really uh, interesting flavors from, you know, Samuel Smith's and some of the breweries that really had a wide range of styles and flavors that were really predominantly available on the East Coast was not that case. That wasn't the case on the West Coast. So I think in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, as all these craft brewers were starting up, the influence on the East Coast was more to emulate European styles. And there is a bit more of a balance. There's a little bit more of a refined sort of a flavor going on where these crazy you can't swear. <laughs> Crazy people on the West Coast were all home brewers, and they were just throwing whatever they could get in their beer and trying to make these wild experimental sort of beers. And the things that they were throwing in were hops, and a lot of them. And uh, I think that's where the hop forward sort of uh, balance to the beers really kind of became the predominant sort of West Coast IPA or West Coast pale ale style. And we can thank Ken Grossman for really pioneering that, I think, in, in the largest way and getting it out to the people. And Ken's the owner of Sierra and Nevada, if you didn't know that. But, uh, you know, he, he had Sierra Nevada Pale Ale as this beautiful hoppy beer which rolls about 38 IBUs, I think, right? Um, you know, when you, our IPA is about 45. So we were just a little bit hoppier than a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, but still not really out there on the hoppy edge like, uh, like other beers that came along. And like Todd and at Harpoon, you know, uh, our, our IPA was a seasonal. It was our first seasonal that we made. And uh, we, as soon as I tasted it, I looked at Tony and I said, here's our future. He goes, you think so? I said, it's, it's definitely different than anything out there. And different is going to become better as people look for more challenging beers down the road. So, you know, the early days, it didn't take off. I mean, we were tasting a lot of people at these beer fests, and a lot of people were going, ooh, no, you got a half a Weizen? Or, they didn't even say that. They said half a Weizen or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, we got no halfers. <laughs> Nothing but full around here. We got full Weizens. <laughs> 
But uh, the, uh, you know, the hop forward beers took off slowly, but we just stayed the course. You know, we knew from the public comments from the people that did dig that IPA that they had found something new that they were never going to turn back. And it's the same sort of revelation that, that I kind of found at Tommy's Joint that day. It's like you get that flavor and it's like, holy cow, I'm, I'm, I'm on to something new. So, you know, it's hoppy beers again on the West Coast. They're, they're uh, Bert Grant. Anybody remember Grant's up in Washington? He was in Yakima, Washington and the epicenter of where the hop growing region is. And, uh, you know, he made a lot of different styles of beer. His perfect porter was the one that he kind of got known for in certain circles. But he was making this IPA with the Taj Mahal on the label, and it was so hoppy it would take the enamel off your teeth. And, uh, I mean, it was like, wow. And I was like, nobody's going to drink that. And, uh, and I was right. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, that was just too early, you know, it was before its time. If that beer were available right now, it would probably compare to something like a Stone Ruination. Has anybody had that? You know, it's a really edgy, I mean, the bitterness of that beer is so sharp and so cool. You know, it's just, there's, a, there's this huge range of IPAs that are out there now, and Ruination, I think, is on kind of that, that bitter forward edge where, uh, you know, Harpoon and Lagunitas IPA still have a lot of malt balance to them. And I think you're going to find the same things true as we step up into our bigger IPAs that we're going to get to next. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole hoppy beer thing has evolved a little differently coast to coast. But, you know, the, everybody, I think, now is really... There's, there's the edgy hop beers are, are what people are going for on both coasts. And, uh, you know, we, we've been selling beer on the East Coast for about eight or nine years now. And uh, it's, it's, you know, people love hoppy beers. And they're not necessarily that concerned with, with where they come from, but it's definitely about quality. And, and, again, there's such a wide variety of flavors that everybody kind of finds their favorite. You know, and I had loyal IPA drinkers that, uh, you know, told me that they would drink nothing but our IPA for the rest of their lives. And then we made a beer called Maximus. Anybody ever had Maximus? You know, that's about 7.5%, 72 IBUs. And um, you know, we made that as a seasonal in 1996. And uh, that was, again, people are drinking it going, nobody's going to drink this. I'm like, oh, yeah, they will. You just hang in there. So, you know, that was one of the earliest, uh, if you'll call it a double IPA. We just called it Maximus IPA. But, um, you know, when we made that one, it was like I had loyal IPA drinkers that were like, okay, I found something new, now I'm moving on. And I was like, woo, I'm glad we made it instead of somebody else. Because you got to give them somewhere to move up in the family, you know. And uh, I think Harpoon's found that with, uh, with some of their core drinkers, I imagine, too, that have kind of evolved up into Leviathan and some of their more dramatic flavors over time. Um, as Todd said, it's still, what, 80% of your production? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Close. You know, our IPA is cruising about 60% of ours, and you know, we've got a, a broad band of seasonals and other beers that, that get out there pretty good, but the IPA is still our workhorse and still growing faster than anything else we do. And you know, IPA, I don't know if everybody is aware, but IPA is the, the fastest growing category in the craft beer industry. So, you know, it's just, I think Harpoon and Lagunitas both have, have kind of benefited from that, you know, and all, all boats rise with the tide. And as more and more people drink IPA, we're the familiar brands, I think, on each coast that, uh, that really kind of get a lot of kick from people coming into the category. And there's some breweries that are just starting to make IPAs that uh, are just tremendous beers. Anybody had Torpedo from Sierra? I mean, holy cow. Right, I mean that's just a beautiful beer. So, you know, it's interesting in the craft brew category. As uh, you know, Paul and I haven't thrown anything at each other yet. We haven't said any nasty words about each other. <laughs> <laughs> Try to put a Bud and a Miller guy side by side and have this talk. <laughs> 
But it's neat that in this category, we all drink each other's beer. We all love good beer. We're in this business because we want to drink good beer. And the best way to do that is to make good beer. And then you know you're going to be able to drink it all the time, right? So uh, that's why I drink so much because I figure the more I drink, the more we have to make. And then the brewers keep their jobs and I keep mine. And it's worked for 16 years. What are some of the other uh, beers out there in the country that are some of your favorites besides the ones you've mentioned? In the IPA category, you mean? All over. Or just all over. You know, I, I, as far as IPAs, uh, Bell's Two-Hearted. I don't even think they call that an IPA necessarily. I think some you know, beer advocate and some cl- classifications are starting to go that way. That's a delicious beer. That's a, uh, just a beautifully well-rounded beer. You know, I, my personal tastes lean toward more balance and, and more bitterness. I mean, more aroma than bitterness in the hops and more resiny flavor. Any homebrewers in the house? All right. So, uh, so you know, when I don't know when I started homebrewing in whatever '87 or '88, um, you know, I'd get manuals and they'd have an initial bittering hop and they'd have an ending aroma hop. And as time went on, I was like, well, how, how come you guys are throwing hops in in the middle there? And they're like, well, that's that's the middle hopping. I'm like, that wasn't in any of my books. No wonder my beer sucked. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but that middle hopping, you know, that as you as you boil hops, I'm sure the homebrewers in the house know this. But as you boil hops, the longer you boil them, the more it turns the oil from the hop gland into an acid, a pure acid form that becomes water soluble and gives you that bitterness on your tongue. <clears throat> it, it blows most of the flavor components out by boiling that long. Most of the the real volatile components that develop into the aromas and the resiny flavors are blown out, so you end up with this raw bitterness. But you want that for the balance in the beer to some extent. The more you put in up front, the bitter your beer will be. Uh, so if you put them in mostly at the end, you'll have a lot of aroma and not much bitterness. The ones in the middle are the ones that I really love. And I can tell when there's a, a, a beer like Rune IPA that's got a nice round middle hopping. It's got this resiny sort of flavor that rolls over your tongue. It doesn't really turn into bitterness. It just kind of tastes like weed, you know? It's, it's kind of cool. Or um, pineapples. Or citrus. Um... We're, we're just starting, we, we've been uh, homebrewing for a while now, and we're actually growing hops now. So we are just started growing Cascade hops. And how do you suggest we start using our Cascade hops into our, into our just like our regular homebrewing rotation once they start uh, producing flowers and they, uh, the, the, you know, the production part of the hops? The Cascades are a lower alpha hop, and uh, hops are measured by the alpha acid that they contain. And uh, it's a measurement that we get on each of our batches of hops that we get in. And alpha acid is pretty much just the pure acid measurement. So Cascades are generally in the four to six range where we use a, a, hoppy, uh, a bittering hop called Horizon generally that's in the 14 to 16 alpha range. So you have to use fewer ounces of hops, or in our case, tons, <laughs> to, uh, to make the, you know, to get the beer, get the bitterness that you want. You use less of those high alpha hops. But some of those hops don't necessarily produce the the really nice flavors or aromatics that you're looking for. Um, there's, a, there's a hop called Galena that's a super high alpha hop that really kind of tastes, not that, it doesn't have that great of a flavor, but uh, the big brewers all love it. Anheuser-Busch buys most of the crop that's out there because they just want some pure bitterness at the beginning of their thing and they don't care about aroma and flavor. <coughs> Cascades being a lower alpha hop, uh, I don't mean that in a mean way, you know. It's, but that's not that's not what that beer's about, you know. It's, uh, but uh, uh, it did come out 
like that. Anyway, uh, it's but, not about bitterness either, though, is it? No, it's not that, <laughs> not that much. But they don't use that much. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, the Cascade hop, being a lower alpha hop, it would lean itself, lean the you know toward the the aroma portion of it and the and the flavor hopping. You know that thirty minute addition. I don't know how long you boil in sixty or ninety. Yeah, you know, if you put in 25, 30 minutes to, before the end of the boil, you'll get a lot of resiny flavor out of a Cascade, and then the aroma is really nice. They're great to dry hop with, too. Um, you know, I, I don't know if homebrewers are traditionally dry hopping. I mean, when I was, when I was you know, homebrewing, you really needed to kind of do something to the hops before you put them in your fermenter because of contamination risk, you know, and you really need to, to have a, a, you know... I don't know, we'd, we'd boil them and then put them in, and we'd boil them too long, and that's another reason my beer sucked. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think, I think the, uh, are you dry hopping? Are you planning to dry hop? Cascades really have that nice citrus. It's, and like Todd said, I, can't, I think it's kind of the, the sort of uh, widely, most widely used hop by craft brewers for IPAs because of that really nice citrusy sort of uh, grapefruit component. Yeah. So... Sure, sure. The um, you know we uh, there's uh, a lot of different uh, ways to hop a beer. Uh, we use uh, we use uh, hop oils that are extracted with liquid CO2 for our hop stupid. It's the only beer that we use it in. But uh, you know when you're when like I was saying, you know you put a lot of hops in up front in the boil, and it creates a lot of bitterness and a lot of IBUs. But it also you also cook out a lot of vegetable flavors and a lot of uh, sort of burnt burnt leaf vegetables things like that. If you boil a lot of hops for a long time and it's chlorophyll it's things like that that are getting into the beer and there's there's um, always been a, a sort of a phobia of extracts but uh, you know there's new technology these extracts aren't aren't uh, extracted with solvents anymore they're extracted with liquid co2 so they flood a chamber of hops with liquid co2 the hop oils crystallize fall away from the plant they run the liquid out and they evaporate the liquid co2 and and you've got nothing but hop oil and you put your finger in it touch it to your tongue you're going to taste it for hours and it's going to take a couple of days to get it off your finger you know it's really dense stuff there are a lot available yeah we are we're using just one and uh it's uh um i don't want to really we don't really talk about which one we use actually there's there's not a lot of secrets to our recipes but anymore it's like eh, you know just Everybody makes great beer, you know. We don't need to copy each other. So it's, uh, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Definitely. Are you using um, oils? We are not, but no. uh, we the company travels to uh, Germany Europe, every year. And, uh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag on German beers. There are lots of hop extract cans and malt coloring cans around every brewery i've ever been to in germany so <laughs> it's yeah, uh, it, it can be overdone do. i mean it's it's a very efficient you know method of making beer and it's really not cheating <laughs> no it's it can be overdone though you know if you just I, and i when i was homebrewing my first batch of homebrew i opened a can of malt i, I did use pelletized hops but uh you know to, to use all extracts it takes a lot of the art out of the brewing i sure. think because the 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 maltster is is part of the artistic result of the beer the way you mash the grain you know to use to use malt extracts i think you're cutting off some of the some of the layers that give you a lot of flexibility and really creating your pure art form and with hops we wouldn't use extracts top to bottom in our beer forever i mean ever but uh then we when we thought about making a super hoppy beer and we wanted to get up in the you know close to the triple digit ibus 
you know, we looked into different uh, different methods that were being used, and and Tony sent a, a note to the to the hop company and said, "Hey, I'm wondering about. I've heard there's these new extraction methods, and that's pretty clean stuff. And I want to see what's available." So he gets back this list a mile long of about 50 different hop extracts that are available in in this liquid CO2 extraction form, and. Um, calls him up. He goes, my God, or you got so many available. I didn't think there'd be many, that many available. Who's buying this stuff? And he goes, I can't tell you. <laughs> it's like, what? what? Yeah, it's, nobody wants anybody to know they're using them. Right. And Tony's like, come on, that's some BS. You know, really, everybody's using them and nobody's talking about it? I mean, isn't this about, you know, kind of transparency and making good beer and making things that people like to drink? And, and uh, he goes, just tell me, tell, me, tell me a couple. And he goes, Tony, everybody's using them. And uh, it was like, okay, a well, big, you know. A big selling point on them is that it takes X amount of, you know, hop material out of your, your, your knockout to your, to your fermenter. So, you know, separating that material from the wort or the, the unfermented beer is a very difficult thing. You know, That's when, right. when you get to the, the point where you're adding so much hops that you're losing, you know, 10 barrels when you make your imperial IPA as opposed to your flagship IPA. Yeah, it's a lot of beer, and it's it's like it's a mess. It's like spinach soup, you know. Right, it's like right. it's a, but uh, but that's you know the the flavor is really what we were going for to have a big hop flavor without without the the uh, vegetable flavor that comes along with it in that in that regard. So um, I think I think we're the only one really broadcasting the fact we use them, and we got nothing to hide. Tastes good. It makes the beer taste good. So uh, Ron, uh, I'm fine with it. Tell us about the uh, Maytag blue cheese and what qualities uh, encouraged you to um, pair it with the hop stupid. Uh, you know, it's just uh, as we've experimented. You know, fear and, uh, beer and food pairing is all about experimentation. You know, there's some certain guidelines that really can be consistent guidelines for certain types of food pairing well with each other. But when it comes down to it, it's just like anything else. It's like, what do you like? And everybody's taste buds are individual, you know, and everybody's got a little bit of a unique palate that, uh, you know, you really got to decide what you like. Some people do like the bitterness that I don't like in beer. I still don't mind knocking back a Miller High, uh, High Life once in a while because of that corn grit flavor. You know, you get a jack-in-the-box taco, I think the best pairing <laughs> with a jack-in-the-box taco is a Miller High Life. I'm sorry. It's just, I know neither one of them are really high quality, you know, and we were just they talking are. about In Out Burger earlier. In and Out, yeah. <laughs> no, In and Out's probably best with an IPA. <laughs> the Jack in the Box tacos, I mean, jeez. <laughs> but I still love them. I still eat them. I know they're not good for me. But uh, but the uh, the blue cheese that we've got, uh, you know, the Maytag blue. You know, uh, Fritz has always been one of our heroes. He's like our grandpa, you know. And I, he thought this was this whole thing was way cool before any of the rest of us. And now he's branched off into making wine. Has anybody had his uh, York Creek Vineyards? Uh, he's making some unbelievable wines. He, you know, the family's made cheese for years. It's just uh, they, they. He really has this quality. Uh, sort of attack on life, and uh, you know he's. Um, I'm really happy for him. It sounds like he didn't really have anybody to hand off the brewery to. He searched long and hard before he found these guys that that he sold anchor to. Does everybody know they they sold recently, right? Have no fear. They're going to carry on the tradition that Fritz put on the table. And it sounds like these guys, Keith Greger, I met Keith Greger a couple of weeks ago. He came up and checked out the brewery. He lives right by us. And he's one of the two guys that bought it. And he, he just comes in with jeans and a jacket on, you know, just kind of laid back. And, you know, I didn't think that he looked like the type of guy who would own Sky Vodka and then buy Anchor 
brewing. But, uh, but you know, he, he, Fritz was very careful about who he was uh, going to let buy this thing. And, um, you know, I wish him the best of luck. I know he's going he's gonna to still drink his beer, I imagine. But, but this cheese has always been one of my favorites. Um, we use it in the restaurant. Uh, we have a tap room now, and we use Maytag Blue and some of our stuff. Um, we... Uh, you know, I've tried a lot of different pairings, and cheese and beer is really one where you really have to experiment around a little bit. And there are some general sort of generalizations. Uh, cheddar and blue cheese both tend to go well with hoppy beers. This Maytag blue is such a, such a big sort of a pungent cheese, and, you know, it's uh, side by side with a, with a really kind of an aggressively hopped beer. It just really, they melt together in, in a way that I think is pretty amazing. And uh, there's another uh, cheese out there called Humboldt Fog. Anybody have Humboldt Fog before? You know, that one with an imperial stout, forget about it. I mean, there's just certain cheeses that are like, here we go, this is just a natural. So um, has everybody got a little hop stupid going yet? Yeah. Yeah? How's that tasting? Yeah, what do you think I, with the cheese? Is, can I ask Mark? a question here? Yes. I, couple things. First, you said forget about it, so you're not a West Coaster, because that's an East Coast saying. I didn't say so. forget about it. <laughs> he, did, he did say forget about it. Did he? R's in there. I used R's. Um, hey, hey. And Harpoon is, was my introduction into craft brewery back in the, in the early 90s, drinking their beer, so, and, and I love Lagunitas. But um, you, you've talked a lot about the history of the, uh, and how you make the beer and all that, but can you walk us through a tasting, like kind of what, what you're looking for and, and what you taste and, and what you're going for as we sample these beers, that would, that would be helpful for me. As far as the pairing or just the beer themselves? No, just the beer itself. I, I got a little bit of stupid left, and, and I, I can smell the pine, but what, do you, is that, what are you looking for? Is that... You know, we, we're looking for a complexity in the aroma that, uh, that is some pine that's got... You know, there's, there's a few different sort of general categories of hops, and we're playing around with all of them, as are most craft brewers now. There's some new hybrids on the scene. Everybody's, you know, cross-pollinating and coming up with things. It's like the pot growers in Humboldt County, you know. They're just going crazy up in Yakima. But, uh, but they are coming up with these varieties that are high alpha and super high flavor. Um, well, there's a hop called Simcoe. Anybody home brewers using Simcoes? I mean, that's that's a new popular favorite with a lot of brewers, and we love it. I mean, that's guy that takes Cascade to sort of a steroidal level. You know, it's like Cascade on steroids, but it's got this uh, this really nice citrusy grapefruity thing. There's the citrusy ones. There's some that are more fruity and round, like ripe melons and. Uh, mangoes, you know, you get some weird sort of more, what, you know, I don't know how to overgeneralize that, that flavor, but it's more round and more ripe fruit rather than citrus and sharp fruit. Yeah, tropical. Yeah, yeah Amarillo tropical, and right, Simcoe right, kind of exactly. occupy that tropical fruit yeah. range. And then there's just the dank ones that are like pine needles and weed, you know, really. And there's, they're close cousins. That, you know, they're, there's some that, that just have a really kind of a pungent aroma. And those are, those are pretty fun hops to play around with, too. So with Hop Stupid, we leaned more toward the citrusy stuff in the tropical. You know, rather, there is some pine sort of in the aroma, but not so much in the flavor. You know, it's, uh, we're looking for something that can take it up near 100 IBUs and 8% alcohol and still have some roundness to it and still finish with a little bit of sweet malt flavor. You know, we, we, want, we want our finish to always have a balance that comes together, whether, you know, there's a bell curve to flavor, and you start to get the hop bitterness, then you get the round flavors, then the malt comes in. We want the malt to be the thing that finishes the job rather than that, that puckery bitterness on most of our beers. And there's a couple of exceptions. We've made some that, uh, we made a beer called Ragwater years ago that we thought should have a really bitter sort of finish because uh, 
from a Tom Waits song about when you're full of ragwater, bitters, and blue ruin, and you spill out all over it, anybody will listen. So, so we put some dank hops in there and left it nice and bitter on the end. And, Yikes. Uh, yeah, and Tom Waits doesn't drink, you know, so we, yeah. He never came and played the brewery. The IPA? Uh, our IPA has not changed at all since then. Um, we've, you know, we've, our brew houses have grown. We've, uh, you know, we've ramped the recipe up, the, the, the batch size is up, but we're very true to the, to the uh, recipe. It's, you know, consistency and repeatability is the, are the benchmarks of, of a brewery's success. I mean, if you, may, you can make a great beer once, but you need to make it the next hundred times need to be the same and perfect, you know, so. Now we're moving to our, to our Leviathan IPA, which is, you know, part of a, a high alcohol line of beers um, that we rolled out a few years ago. Uh, we've done all sorts of styles uh, under this umbrella. Uh, the IPA is the, is one of a few that are sort of, well, the IPA actually we brew year round, uh, the, Imperial, the Imperial IPA. And it's, uh, there are a few others that, that we repeat, but for the most part, it's sort of like our 100-barrel series, which is sort of one-off beers that go out there into the trade, and when they're gone, they're gone. Um, but this beer, you know, again, we, we, you know, we, we loosely modeled it after our flagship. This, you know, our flagship relies solely on one hop, character, hop variety, and this has six hop varieties in it. And, you know, Ron was talking about those middle hop additions, and they're really important. You know, this, this beer, um, this beer basically has hops thrown at it all along the way. As soon as we cover the kettle floor for our run, from, our, from our lauder ton to our kettle, our runoff, we cover that kettle floor and we add a lot of hops into that, into that liquid. So first runnings right away, hop bitterness, hop flavor. Um, big, huge bittering addition, and then about 40... 45 minutes into our 90-minute boil with this beer, we just start 5, 10 minutes just hammering it with huge amounts of hops. And, again, we went after pine, citrus, tropical fruit, and that's, you know, that's, that's what people, that's, that's the rage. I mean, that's what people want to drink. That's what people want to smell and taste. Um, so, you know, those late additions are where it's all at. Um, and we, we, we went... We, did, we, we didn't stay. We kind of went, we towed the line between traditional. There is some Cascade toward the end of this beer, and there's also some Centennial, which is another classic old-school hop. But then we went into the new school with Amarillo and Simcoe um, to sort of, you know, breach or go into that tropical fruit area um, and, and of the, the flavors that are brought to the table by those hops. And as Ram was saying, again, this is a, this is one of the more well-balanced or you know double IPAs that I've ever I've ever tasted. Um, I wrote the recipe, so I, that's how it's it's how it's how it was designed. Again, again with that balance in mind, you know, um, there are a lot that are way heavy on bitterness, and you want it to come together at the end. You want there to be sort of a Moorish, if you will, character at the end. Um, you don't want to just you know, be walking away saying, God, I can't undry my mouth, you know? <laughs> what am I going to do here? To me, 
Spicy. Well, That's the Amarillos. Yeah. Yeah, they're a neat hop. They've got big fruity weirdness going on, but then they've got this spicy edge as right, well. They're right. they're um, a really popular hop for for in our brew house. Right, right. It's got it's got quite a bit of you know the 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 finishing gravity on the beer is quite high. Um, you know, and next to our other the other beers in our portfolio, but uh, there's so much hop going on that it's 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 a nice balanced beer at the end you want to have that sugar at the end you want to have that that um that sort of high finishing gravity and leave some sugar behind again to to keep that balance on the finish that you know that's why you know when i'm in boston i'm drinking harpoon ipa i love the finish of that beer it just it really reminds me of our beer and and two-hearted and you know the other ipas out there that i really like to drink so uh you know again it's like there's taste for everybody and you know some people think you know like again back to stone brewing they've got half a dozen ipas that they do with with some of their seasonals and things and ruination is the one is probably my least favorite and that's the one that they get a lot of the notoriety for i think their pale ale is my favorite beer i think that their stone pale ale has this really nice hop balance that's just beautiful but that's that's just me like i said tacos and high life you know Say you come up with Leviathan, the IPA, and you write this recipe. I mean, are you brewing on a smaller scale, like 10, yeah, 12 times, and then you yeah. do bigger? Or? We're, we're basically, uh, you know, test brewing on a, an oversized homebrew kit. You know, we're making, we're making small batches and tasting flavors and, and deciding on all profile and, and what we're going to match, the temperature we're going to mash at and things of that nature. Uh, the color of the wort, um, the finished beer, and hop, you know hop character. We, it, I failed to mention at the beginning of this whole uh, talk that we have a brewery in Windsor, Vermont, as well as a brewery in, in Boston. And um, the Boston brewery is comprised of a, a 120 barrel brew house, and the smallest fermenter we have is 120 barrel fermenter. Um, we've got some 500 barrel tanks as well. Uh, the Vermont brewery is kind of set up in the opposite way. It's got a it's got a 50 barrel brew house and large fermenters, giant fermenters. Um, the smallest, I think, the smallest tank they have is a 200 barrel tank up there. Um, so they brew multiple batches into one fermenter, and that gave, that gives us the the power to make 50 barrels of a beer that you know we're testing, we're trying out. You know, we can we can then keg that beer off for our tasting rooms, and uh, you know local markets basically and, and make sure that we like the, the character of the beer so that's kind of how how it works you know how we develop the beers along the way i have a question about how important is aging the beer to the hops flavor and character you don't want to that's age a, hoppy that's beers a, that's a good question you know, that's Definitely. a great question i'm glad you asked that because i that's one thing that uh, is a real misconception and we're i think as brewers we're just realizing as we make these hoppy beers especially with the dry hop characteristics and ship them out and and then we find out that somebody's drinking it six or eight months later and they're saying it doesn't taste it's the wrong beer in the bottle and uh, you know hops um Traditionally, IPAs, everybody probably knows the IPA story. 
It was the British brewers shipping beer to India to the soldiers, and the beer was spoiling on the ships. They were crossing the equator. The beer in the casks would spoil. It would get there, and the soldiers were ready to come back and kill the brewers. So, you know, <laughs> they were occupying India, but uh, so they, they, the brewers formulated a recipe that would increase the hop characteristic and actually the, the bitterness of the hops and the acid component because that acted as an antibacterial element where it would keep the beer from spoiling. They also took the alcohol up a notch, which uh, <clears throat> also acts as an anti-bacterial. You know, it just doesn't let, the, it prevents the beer from spoiling. So instead of a 4% pale ale, they had this 6% beer that they'd stamp India on the side because after four months on a boat and it's crossing the equator and getting heated up, it would blow that hop flavor and, and character out of the beer for the most part, leave some bitterness, but it would, it wouldn't, it, they wouldn't want to drink it when it was fresh in England. They thought it was terrible stuff. They wouldn't even dream of drinking it. So they'd stamp the cask India. They'd ship it to India. When it got there, it wasn't spoiled, <clears throat> but it didn't have that hop flavor either. And now what we're doing is trying to create these big explosive hop aromas and crazy hop flavors and this resiny hop juice in your mouth that is very volatile and uh, it needs to be kept cold and it needs to be drank fresh and you know there, there have been a lot of us that are, that are playing around with aging beer but the beers that age well are beers that have darker malts and not necessarily really dark roasted malt but uh, crystal malts act uh, they, they have an antioxidant component actually so the oxidation of a beer slows down with some of those darker malts and if you've got high alcohol you get you know, I'm thinking you know, for our beers, I just had one last night that was 6.8. Uh, I was at the Brick Skeller, and Rachel, God love her, she goes, I've been saving this bottle for the next time I saw you, and it was like four years ago. And it's a 6.8 seasonal that was at least three years old then, because I know we haven't made it for seven. And she said, I've got Loginator. I'm like, great. And we're at the Brick Skeller in the middle of everybody in the industry, and she's like, let's drink it. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I got the first sip, and I was like, whew, what the hell, that tastes great. It was unbelievable, but it had no hop flavor left at all. It, was a, it wasn't a hoppy beer to begin with, but the hops were gone. That dark malt did hold it up, but I think that's pretty much the, you know, and if you, need to, you need to be in the six and a half, seven and up range, I think, for aging beers. And if they have hops in them, that will definitely help them keep from spoiling, but it also does oxidize. Hop components oxidize in a beer quicker than anything else, and you get this sort of mustiness and a little bit of a oxidation flavor, like just an old beer flavor, you know. It's not necessarily unpleasant. It can be a desirable characteristic in an aged barley wine or something like that. Sometimes a little oxidation can really add a complexity that's kind of cool to a barley wine. But you don't want a lot of it in a beer. And you're going to end up with a lot of it if you age hop stupid. Leviathan would probably hold up a little better. You know, that fresh hop flavor is, is going to go away. But it's got a lot of really nice, rich malt to it and a little bit more viscosity. I think that it would still taste unbelievable down the road. And hop stupid still tastes pretty good after a year, but it sure ain't hop stupid anymore. It's more right. like malt stupid. <laughs> yeah. we, we have we struggle a little bit with that with our sales team to uh, educate our the different Leviathan beers because we'll 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 sell this out on draft and uh, another one will come along, say a saison or something that might be a little more favorable to have some, some age on it. And the beer bars will take them and they'll put them away. And some, you know, they may put one away that they maybe shouldn't have, you know. <laughs> and it'll come out and someone will go taste it and say, oh, man, I went to this so-and-so last night and this, this didn't taste too good. 
Well, it was it was maybe one of those big beers that shouldn't have shouldn't have been aged. So, I, I you know, it's a it's a blurry line because barley wines and old ales and there are, you know a few a few different styles that while they have a big a big hop character and and a lot of late hops, um, they may benefit from from some aging. And like Ron said, you know, a beer with a little more malt uh, body will age better. But I. I I don't recommend aging imperial pilsners or IPAs or anything that relies on bright, fresh, you know, citric hop character. Just drink it. If that's what you like about the beer, it's not going to be there later. For yeah, you, drink you know? it. If you like the malty characteristic of a beer, that's going to be there later. And it might turn into something cool. I mean, we've got uh, several beers that age really well, but they're all very malt forward, like Harry Eyeball Ale and Brown Sugar and some of our winter seasonals that are way more malt forward. And Brown Sugar and the, you know, the caramely malts will really get this caramely sort of flavor going that's really pretty cool. And uh, kind of a, a little bit of a wine characteristic, like port wine flavors and things like that, kind of throw from, uh, from crystal malt. You get the darker malts and you start throwing all these chocolate and coffee flavors and aromas and it really, they're, they're really Really neat flavors. We do a lot of uh, beer dinners where we do verticals. We'll do a three-year vertical of, of some of those winter beers. And uh, again, with the hoppy beers, it's it's not it's not necessarily going to taste like crap later. But uh, it's not going to be what you thought it would turn into necessarily. I was doing a tasting in South Carolina a couple of years ago, and we had changed distributors, and uh, um, we. Uh, uh, our distributors sold out, so I went down and, and there was this case of Maximus that must have been in their back of their their warehouse from their first shipment or something, and it was eleven months old. I get to this tasting; it was a, a trade show. There's two cases of Maximus, and one's eleven months old and one's two months old. So I'm like, "Oh my God, where'd that come from?" And I took a sip, and I'm like, "Ah, oh, it's not tasting like Maximus." I'm like, it "Tastes pretty damn good, though." I drank the rest of it, but, uh, but uh, so this guy comes up to the table and. Uh, as I'm starting to stash all the old stuff and put out the fresh stuff, my assistant there, the, the volunteer, uh, this guy steps up. He goes, I'll try that Maximus. And uh, I'm like, uh, what do you do? It's like you try to make him stop it. You don't want to say, oh, man, no, that tastes like crap. Don't drink that. <laughs> so uh, so he, he gets a little glass and he walks away and I'm watching him. And I'm ready to follow him across the room and explain and tell him to come back and drink the fresh one. <clears throat> and he gets about halfway across and he turns around and comes back. He goes, I got to tell you, man, that's the best beer I've ever had. Where can I get that? I was like, really? Yeah, you can't. Uh, This is the only case I know that exists that's 11 months old because I'll never let that happen anywhere. I said, but if you really like it, and I put him the fresh one. I'm like, here, this is what it's supposed to taste like. He goes, ah, not so much. That's that's kind of like, all right, well, buy buy it fresh. Put it in somewhere that's about 60 degrees, 65, maybe even a little hotter, and put it there for about 11 months, and you're going to have exactly what you're drinking. And, uh, but it's just, again, that goes back to everybody should just drink what they like to drink. You know, it, it's, uh, you know there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of opinionated people. As this category grows, there's a lot of people with an opinion about what other people should drink, and they need to just shut up. You know, it's like have your opinion about what you should drink, expound the knowledge of what you know about other stuff if you're really a, a knowledgeable person about beers. But, you know, it should really be left up to everybody to decide what they like. I mean, out of this room, I imagine there's a, a relatively balanced opinion on who liked which beer best, you know, and it's almost always like that. It's like, you know, it's going to be all over the board. So it's all part of the fun. There you go. Hi, um, Ron earlier said different is going to become better. Talking about your first IPA, which I think is a great quote. And uh, but 
the thing is, now you also point out that IPA is now like the most overblown category as far as everyone has an IPA. So what do you think is like the future of the IPA? I mean, it, there's so many IPAs out there now for hopheads beyond Imperial, just staying within the kind of IPA category. What can be done at this point? You know, I think I, th- I honestly think most of it's been done with hoppy beers. the The exception is is varieties of yeast, and that's starting to come on with like Belgian IPAs. You know, IPA recipes with a Belgian yeast, and they're interesting beers. I mean, you, you talk about having a lot of complexity in an IPA, and then just throwing like a knuckleball in there along with it. It's like you're, it's a, it's crazy, and. Uh, I think yeast strains in general are going to be the next sort of trend, and they're already becoming that, where the, you know different varieties of yeast, different types of Britannomyces yeast that's not necessarily Saccharomyces. Everybody knows the difference there, or should I talk about that a little bit? You know, Britannomyces, is anybody homebrewed with Britannomyces? Paul, of course you have. <laughs> but uh, Britannomyces is a yeast you, strain that, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's derived from a wild yeast. They're cultivated now, but they are sort of wild yeasts, and so are some of the Belgian yeasts. You know, we use a, a Westmall yeast for uh, a Westmall derivative for, uh, for all of our, or most of our Belgian beers, and we're starting to play with a couple of more Belgian yeast strains. But, uh, you know, that, that, the yeast flavors are really interesting to play around with, and you get Britannomyces, it's a different sort of a yeast. It's a little less predictable. It takes a little longer to play out its flavor before it starts tasting good. You know, the early stages of a, of a Saccharomyces fermentation aren't that tasty to most people either, but Britannomyces, it might be months, you know, and then you start getting into bacteria strains and things like that, lactobacillus and pediococcus, and you start getting all these crazy flavors that kind of all originated in in the old days. I mean, every every beer was wild, right? I mean, they just put their mash out and let whatever airborne yeast would inoculate it, and hopefully it would taste good. And there's still one little valley in Belgium where they do that. That's about the only place I know. I mean, we're in dairy country and wine country. If we tried to spontaneously ferment a beer, we'd have cheese, <laughs> I think. But, uh, but you know, to, back to the IPA thing, it's like, you know, IPAs, the, the traditional IPA, English-style IPA is kind of more balanced, and that's where a lot of the East Coast IPAs kind of started. I think the, the higher levels of bitterness will continue to maybe grow in popularity, but I still see a lot of these really extreme flavors being things that get a lot of, a lot of talk, a lot of interest, but uh, they're never going to be widely popular. You know, there's just certain flavors that are going to turn people off, you know. And for us, it's like we, we're not really, we're starting to play around with a little Brett on some of our barrel-aged beer, but we're pretty traditional about the yeast that we use, and we want to have our English ale yeast that kind of produces this nice round flavor. <clears throat> we use it with most of our beers. It's part of our signature sort of Lagunitas stamp on the beer. I have a lot of people say they can taste our brewery flavor through our beers, and that's, that's from the yeast. And you can put a lot of malts and a lot of different hops with our yeast, and you're going to, you know, if you know our beers, you're going to kind of go, that might be a Lagunitas. And um, again, it's, uh, there's going to be experimentation all over the board. You know, we're thinking about making the first virus beer. Um, we're, we're on the fence between Mad Cow and, uh, and Ebola, but... Uh, Yuck. I just, you know, we're in dairy country, so I'm thinking... That's definitely that. West Coast, right? I'm thinking uh, if you see a beer called Spongiform Encephalopathy, that'll be us. <laughs> So, uh, you know, bacteria and brat just aren't quite taking it to the right level, so we need a good virus. That's great. Just kidding. We won't really do that on purpose. Our, uh, our IPA is still, in our outer, outer markets, it's still our you know, biggest growing brand. I mean, we, we have four, four or five brands that we push in our 
furthest markets, and the IPA is what people go for. So, you know, we're not going to change a thing, and we're going to see it see it through. Um, we're going to let it go where it will. It's doing well for us right now. So, and you know, these these big beers, getting these beers, these two here, to the point where they are now is kind of, I think. I can speak for Lagunitas as well as by saying that, that that is the next step for a brewery like us to kind of make those, you know, good selling brands and, and reliable, strong, big IPA brands, you know. Um, and as far as Belgian strains go, uh, we just recently started brewing a uh, what we call Belgian pale ale, which is available downstairs. Plug right there. Um <laughs> which is finished with Amarillo hops. It's really nice. Uh, it's actually fully finished with Amarillo so at the end, and it's, and it's, it's uh, fermented out with Trappist ale yeast, so it's a nice sort of example of American, an American hop character with that Belgian twang, that little twist at the end, you know? So uh, we're happy about the beer. It's doing well. It's, it's about a year old now, and it's uh, cooking along. So that's, you know, I think a lot of brewers have taken that that tact with Belgian pale ales and a lot of Belgian brewers have, uh, which is really cool to see these, Bel- these Belgian breweries brewing Belgian IPAs with American hop varieties. It's a totally awesome. You know, that's another great example of, you know, the fact that we are in the best place in the world to drink beer because we can get away with what we want. And now our sort of influences are stealing from us, so... Cool. So next year we're going to do the evolution of hoppy beers from continent to continent. <laughs> so, and it is Very true, cool. you know, these old traditional brewing uh, nations have really embraced uh, the sort of the craziness that's going on in America. And um, there's, you know, there's brewers all around the country or all around the world that are emulating American beers now, where it used to obviously be the other way around. But, you know, for us, it's, again, Hop Stupid and some of these crazy beers we make are all about having fun, making new stuff, just experimenting and playing around. But it's all about, really, our our core brand is our IPA. And like Todd said, I mean, our IPA is still our fastest growing brand. Everything we do around it, all these other crazy beers and our seasonals and our Pilsner, and which is available downstairs. The, uh, <laughs> all those beers are all about getting people into the family, but the, the IPA just keeps cranking. It's just going crazy. So you know, everything we do is about you know making more IPA and drinking more IPA and selling more IPA and you know, just keeping that as the point on our pencil. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's, it's still playing out with the craft brew category, but in, historically, a brand has always had to have one flagship that really is their, their workhorse, you know, and that's not necessarily so true anymore. There's breweries out there that are, are starting to really spread their portfolio out, and, they're, you know, Rogue is a great example. I mean, they've got beers all over the board, and they're, there's, they don't have a clear leader. Um, you know, Stone has their pale ale is really their number one beer in San Diego, and IPA has kind of overtaken that now. But, uh, you know, they've, they've got a lot of great flavors with Arrogant Bastard and stuff that, that really kind of spreads their portfolio out. So we'll see if it's about, you know, if consumers can really embrace a brand and all the intricacies of a, of a multi-layered brand, or if people really just need one, one focus to a brand. I, I assume a lot higher level of intelligence in the craft brew consumer, and we always have. That's why we've got the stories on our labels that have... Big words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that brings us to our hour. 
I'd like to uh, thank you guys for your presentation and thank everyone for coming here. And uh, I think it's time to get back down to the main floor. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, thank Paul. you. Thank you for listening to Craft Beer Radio's 2010 coverage of Savor, an American craft beer and food experience. To learn more about Savor, please go to savorcraftbeer.com. To listen to more salons, interviews, and other content from Craft Beer Radio, please go to craftbeerradio.com. You can contact us on Twitter at at craftbeerradio or via email at beer at craftbeerradio.com.